0: what's up guys i'm connor i'm chandler and this is we don't watch shitty movies
1: no shitty movies here no this week i'm showing connor the classic alfred hitchcock's psycho
0: yeah very excited to talk about this uh i've never seen it before so let's get into it
1: let's get into it
0: hot as fresh milk I think we should just do this at the beginning of every podcast. We just talk about different products that we're interested in and just like, wouldn't it be nice if you could just send us one? One of the times we'll get lucky. We'll get like free yeah. Cheez-Its or something. I, I don't know if we're, we'll, we'll talk about Cheez-Its, but like it just I seems mean, like...
1: Cheez-Its, if you send us stuff, we'll talk about it, but yeah. that's not my first choice. So yeah. you're going to have to send a lot.
0: Are you a goldfish guy?
1: Uh, I'm not really much of a cracker person. Like
0: gummy bears? I'm good. I could just eat gummy bears all day. I, I have an issue with gummy bears. I don't know. Like, I think they're a better movie snack. I think my personal favorite movie snack is like a, like milk duds or, or junior mints.
1: Well, now we're gonna get into a fight because the best movie snack of all time is
0: classic popcorn. Oh, a little yeah. soda pop. Yeah. Wait, wait. How do you feel about slushies? Uh, you
1: know, I worked at a movie theater once. Really? I did um and we had icy machines there were only two flavors they they're good they're always fun when you go in and you're a kid but then when you have like good access to them and you have them often and you, like they don't go as well with any other snack or popcorn or anything and
0: oh so kind of ruined because you like saw how the sausage is made
1: uh not necessarily well that was gross too our machine was kind of uh prone to breaking and leaking weird sludge <laughs> Uh, but it was, it was more of the experience, like when you have access to everything and you're not limited by a paywall for it. And so it's not like, Oh, what can I treat myself with? You take that psychology out of it. It's just what actually tastes the best. What do I actually want? Ices you, they're good for the first few sips and then it's all ice. All no ice at the bottom and, and you're just so, like yeah, trying to suck to, the juice out of yeah, it. And you have to work <laughs> the you're cut. just
0: kind of like ice picking your way. And usually you're like. The movie is starting by the time you're halfway done with it, and so you're just, like, you're you're doing heavy lifting by doing, like, the, the ice picking and, like, trying to slurp the, the little ice. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's
1: enough to make a man go psycho.
0: Hey, hey I see hey, what you uh, did there.
1: But, yeah, no, it's... I don't want to work for my snacks. I want to pay attention to the movie.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of liked The Spoon when I was younger, but I just... I don't know if I... I, it's been a the, while since I've tiny, been the tiny,
1: The here. tiny little baby spoon makes yeah, me feel like a
0: giant. <laughs> That's kind of fun. I never really realized, I never really figured out which way it was supposed to go. Is that is the baby spoon supposed to go that side down, or is it supposed to go baby spoon up?
1: No, you, you don't put the baby spoon in your mouth. It goes in the – because then when you want to use the baby spoon, you just pick up the – I don't like, know. It was a poorly designed straw. It really
0: <laughs> – I, I, I'm still trying to figure out. I mean I went and saw uh, – Avatar 2, the new the new Avatar movie. Mm. It was first of all, that movie was phenomenal. It was it was so great. It definitely felt like it was a long time coming and it was I was afraid it was going to be overhyped.
1: Was it good though?
0: Oh, it was actually very good. Like I
1: I was kind of waiting for it to come out so I could watch it at home. I know it's definitely one of those you should watch it in the theaters but
0: you know, it know. it was I think so so I have this issue where I can never hear in movie theaters. So, I mean, when I go to the movie theater, I have to be really particular about it. And they've got the little, like, open caption things, but it's, I mean, you kind of have to work for the dialogue. It's kind of the same sort of issue as, like, the, the like, yeah. the icy. It's like, you're just, like, you have to work really hard for not a lot of, Do you see where I'm getting yeah, with this? and
1: and with the... Those little caption boxes. I know exactly what you're talking yeah, they're, about. They're so like, they're they, just... they might be different per theater. The ones that we had you there, it's like a little box and it's got a crane arm and it sticks in your cup holder.
0: Yep, that's, that's what I had. Up.
1: But the issue with them is it's never at a good height. So, like with actual open captions on the screen, you can at least like just your eye line can flick back and forth yeah. between like like, like you do character. on Netflix, yeah, like you do on like Netflix or we don't want to name just one streaming service or Prime Video or Apple TV or HBO Max <laughs> or Hulu or uh, Peacock or I don't know, I'm Paramount Plus, CNN Plus. or CNN Plus <laughs> or YouTube TV. Um, R.I.P. with those act- <laughs> but with those actual boxes, you like have to like actually move your head and like up and down. Yeah, It's like a weird adjustment because the focal distance is different.
0: That was my thing is I, so it's like a three hour movie, right? Three, three and a half hour movie. It's like, it's very long. Um, And at some point I was started getting used to it. And I was like, at what point is this line necessary for me to hear? Can I just like guess? Like, can I just give it my best guess and just kind of, you know, watch what happens. And, and and to its credit, that movie was really good about being very action-focused fo- first and not, like, line-focused. And if they get really close and have, like, a you know, I really want to tell you this and you're like, okay, I'm going to start, you know, reading the dialogue. But, anyway, phenomenal movie. It was definitely not overhyped. I mean, it's, and it's pretty hard to say that for a movie that's, you know, 10 years in the making, but it was really, really phenomenal.
1: Yeah, for sure. Speaking of theaters and I, I don't know why, but talk, just accessibility. I, the closest thing we're going to get to a political statement on here is that I think movie theaters should, all movie theaters, not just ones in like densely populated deaf areas, should have showings with open captions.
0: I just, I just think closed captions are better. I mean, I think, I think people are just watching movies with closed captions anyway. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's just...
1: So there's a difference between closed caption and open caption. The open caption is when it's closer to like Netflix, where you have the text is superimposed on the screen. Closed captions, I think you can like turn on and off. I could be wrong. I am out of touch with the specific captioning, but like
0: having can we agree on just like captions?
1: Yeah, captions. I think
0: I think captions and not not
1: subtitles. Captions. They're different. We're gonna do some research and we'll get back to you guys on the difference between subtitles and captions.
0: Wait, subtitles. This is actually kind of blowing my mind. What
1: we'll get back to that at the end of the episode. We'll we'll okay. <laughs> we'll do some research and we'll let the audience know the difference between I, open I really and closed I really like we we're, we're
0: already going, to, going down the rabbit hole even before we even started the, the, the real the real conversation. I really like speaking this.
1: of down the rabbit hole this week we watched Alice in Wonderland. No, I'm just <laughs> right. That's what we decided.
0: No, I'm just kidding.
1: Okay, okay. So enough about speaking movie theaters of Mad and Mad Hatters. Um, Mad Hatters. That's good. Yeah, that's yeah. good
0: um we watched psycho
1: yeah i give you two options and you chose psycho
0: and you'd seen it before
1: i'd say i saw it a while ago i watched it in 2012 i had a film analysis class in high school it was like my first introduction to uh like film as analysis as opposed to just just watching it it was a class that mostly upperclassmen took so like i (laughs) I applied to get into it um knowing i probably wasn't going to get the class but as a sophomore i was able to get in i was the only sophomore in the class and it was it's pretty cool um, I also I probably tried the hardest in that class out of everyone. It was a blow off class, but oh yeah, I mean, I tried because I. Liked I feel it. like
0: any film class in high school is that that way, but you know, you get to watch movies in school, and that doesn't suck.
1: It was interesting as a sixteen year old. It was my first day of high school because where I was from, sophomore year was when you went to high school. It was elementary school oh, was through. Uh, fifth grade middle school was six and seven junior high was eight and ninth and then sophomore year was in high school okay. in my senior year they switched it up and it's back to what the country sees as a standard but it was my first year in high school and this was like my first class and some of the first movies we started watching were like not like heavily are not like gratuitous violence but being from missouri and raised in missouri and yeah. going to a high school class where then you watch a movie for this class to analyze and then there's not like explicit nudity but i mean there there is a very iconic scene nothing crazy but yeah there's some boobs yeah (laughs) um yeah so we watched psycho
0: i've seen it you had i'd I'd never seen it i so i had um i've watched a couple of hitchcock movies uh to catch a thief is one of my personal favorite movies but it's not I don't think it's his usual style. I mean, it's obviously a suspense. It's definitely like a whodunit movie, which he does a lot. But it wasn't scary or like it didn't make me nervous or anything. It, they just kind of it pulls you along like a good Hitchcock movie would do. But yeah, this was this was a new a new movie, and I my understanding of it was that it was kind of a horror movie, and that's sort of my that's sort of where my knowledge of of movies kind of ends so i don't usually do horror movies the most recent horror movie i watched was get out and that was because everybody and their mother was just like it's the greatest movie i've ever seen and i was like
1: okay so many
0: mothers talking so, about so, so many, many mothers. mothers
1: talking about get out it's crazy
0: um yeah so i finally got convinced to watch or to break into horror movies again because i had some traumatic experiences i watched a i think it was insidious in the theaters and i was in like seventh grade and there's the the little like demon guy that pops out of the girl's shoulder or something. And it just scarred me. I was like not sleeping while well. I was seeing the, the guy's face kind of pop out of the closet oh, when I was sleeping. And it was like for like three or four weeks, it would just happen. I was like, Oh God.
1: So I think you and I have a similar story where I wasn't a huge, scary movie person. I think for me, it wasn't even a horror movie that did it for me. It was Indiana Jones. Um, the Kalima. Oh. See, and like that, that for me, I was like, I can't do scary movies. I don't want to watch Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't want to watch anything with mine. Wow. Um, but then when I had to start watching some of these movies for like uh, classes, analysis classes, I was like, these movies are the most predictable out of any movie. And like, I'd be watching them with classmates and like, it was kind of scary. I had to close my eyes at points. And I was like, guys, it's, it was obvious that it was going to happen. Like we're studying what's going to happen the tricks that they use. They can't fool us anymore, guys. <laughs>
0: it's I, well, I remember when I was in, I think, seventh or eighth grade, we watched The Sixth Sense. Yeah. And it was still at that point where everybody knows Bruce Willis is dead at the end of six of The Sixth Sense. Oh, my God, that's really hard to say. Spoilers. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I remember there were, like, a couple of scenes from that movie where, like, the girl's, like, vomiting and, like, has got the gross, like, poison, whatever. That scared the shit out of me. I was like, Nope. Nope. And I just like, I kept on that path where I was like, I can't do scary movies. I won't do them. And so I like broke out of it last year when I saw Get Out. But it was like, that whole, the whole time, I was just like, is it going to happen? Or is something scary going to jump out and get me?
1: The interesting thing about Psycho, though, is the first time I watched it, I was introduced to it as this is a horror movie or something of the like. I don't think it really is. It's a psychological thriller.
0: That I I completely agree.
1: Although I guess you don't know that until the end, so it, it can be kind of scary a little bit. But once it just you know makes you nervous. On, yeah, it makes you so like suspenseful.
0: That the I I kind of quickly became aware of what type of movie it was because you know when you're you're the the very first shot when they have the big big city city wide view and then they kind of pan into that window mm-hmm. and then you could kind of see the curtain moving a little bit. I don't know if you. I don't know if you caught this, but like as you go into the window, the curtain was sort of moving as though it was like you know a person's shirt or something like that. Mm. And I remember just kind of like tensing up on the couch, like is something gonna jump out at me? And like just right from the gate. Right from that. the gate. I thought somebody was gonna something was gonna jump out at me, and I was like, damn, Hitchcock is really just giving it to us, like just body blow after body blow from round one. And then you know it moves in, and and the it just kind of shows the scene, and I was like, oh. I'm just going to be mildly uncomfortable throughout this entire movie. Like, I'm not going to be scared. It's nothing's going to jump out at me. And really the only thing that possibly could have jumped out at me was at the very end, which we'll get to in a little bit. But I didn't realize what type of movie um, it was going to be until after that first scene that I kind of got a little bit more comfortable I think I quickly realized that the type of movie that it was, was was much more of like a suspenseful, psychological thriller, and it gave me much more of an idea of what Hitchcock was about. Um, but yeah, I definitely thought something was jumping out at me.
1: It's been long enough since I've seen the movie that... Either we skipped the beginning when we watched it because we didn't have time for a full two-hour movie, and we okay. wanted to get into one. We had ninety-minute classes. Oh, so it was it.
0: just you just missed it.
1: So yeah, so we might have skipped ahead because you wanted us to see the end, but the beginning's not the most memorable long-term because it doesn't really matter. Like, it, there's there's some important information about Marion's motivation that's nice, but in like the kind of the actual plot of the movie and actually what's going on, like it's almost like a red herring kind of information. It like gets placed there to make you a little bit more comfortable.
0: I want to get back to that because I disagree, but let's 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 get okay. into the plot a little first so we can sort of establish any, everything so in the first scene, what happens if i if I understand it correctly, she's with a lover is she married? Is that
1: Marion is not married Sam, Sam, Sam was married, he is divorced Marion, oh. Sam tells her she talks like she has been married before. But she's not. We don't know whether or not she has been married. Oh, in their so she's,
0: she's sort of like, she's just generally nervous about the situation because it feels illegitimate or like they're sneaking around or...
1: Yeah, they're, they're keeping it a secret. Um, I'm not necessarily sure why. Like, they're not keeping it... I don't think they're necessarily keeping it a secret that they have a thing because Marion's sister knows. Like, she knows to go to Sam later. Um, but she left on her lunch break. So she's keeping it a secret that she went to go see him while he was in town because they don't have time to spend together because he was leaving.
0: Oh, okay. So it was more like, I understand. Okay. 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 So, so it was more like he's there because he's visiting her and we can sort of infer the fact that maybe he, they started getting together before he got divorced
1: we could infer that, yeah.
0: Because it seems like Marion's character as it goes on is just willing to make choices that are morally corrupt or bankrupt.
1: There's there the easy way to say it is she's prone to making selfish decisions. The nice way Probably. to say, the nice way I would say it is she's prone to making decisions that can be a detriment to those around her th- that aren't her priority. Okay. Uh, like, she like she makes decisions for other people. She has like this mindset to make decisions for Sam. We start with Sam and Marion at their lunch break. Marion goes back to work. This man in a cowboy hat comes in to pay for a house in cash, and Marion's supposed to take that money to the bank. Instead of taking it to the bank, she takes the money and, and she's going to go give it to Sam to pay off his
0: debts so they can be together. So it's it's like it's morally it's not selfish decisions, but it's just like not entirely thought through. That's, and it's a little paranoid as well, because that was that was my understanding of her character as it goes on. Is she's she's very paranoid, because I mean, even in the first scene, I think that's one of the reasons why the first scene was there was to show her that she's in situations, but she's just not entirely comfortable with them. So she would always just sort of talk like like I need to. This needs to be legitimate. I feel like I'm sneaking around. I feel like people are watching me. I feel like.
1: Now that you bring that up. I think Marion's kind of the audience's perspective of watching an Alfred Hitchcock movie. She's paranoid, but she feels compelled to take actions that she's not necessarily comfortable with. Almost like it's written in the plot. Like she doesn't have a choice. She has to do it. But almost like there's this hint of, I can tell something's going to go wrong, but I don't know what, where, or with who. So like when she gets pulled over by the cop, she's paranoid because she stole money. But logically, that cop has no idea who she is.
0: Right. Well, so that's... That's kind of what I think about this. Marion's paranoia sticks with us throughout the entire film. and I, and I'll, I'll get to that once we once we get to the the, the shower scene and we're, when she dies. but spoilers? I, but yeah, right. That's our job. That's our job to spoil the movie. That's why we're doing this. So she talks to the the cowboy man, the cowboy man's flirting with her. She doesn't give him anything.
1: He's innocently flirting with her, which is it's still creepy. It's almost like he's like testing an the water.
0: Like old timey, um, I don't know, like secretary flirting. Like not, not. Don't mean anything by it, but like they just.
1: Yeah, but like if that happens nowadays, yeah, you that's can't. Really that. That's just gross. Even then, it's really creepy. Like it's, she's at work because yeah, and her coworker was just trying. like, "Oh my
0: gosh, she was flirting with you," and she's just like, well, she's "Like, yeah, unfortunately." So let's be honest. So Marion's beautiful. Like that was one of the first things that I I noticed in that movie,
1: even in black and white.
0: Especially in black,
1: which play. speaking of the Alfred Hitchcock uh, thing, tech, so Technicolor film had been out when this yeah. movie was made. I had thought this movie was older because this was one of the first movies I watched, and I haven't thought about it in years. Um, I thought it was older, and then I looked up the release date, and I was surprised that it was 1960.
0: Well, one of the one of the things that I really love about these movies, um, especially the older ones, is that there was there's this like change between theater and film and some actors really know that all of their expressions are going to come up on film like if you watch in Casablanca Humphrey Bogart does a really good job of like keeping his face really still and when he has a close-up he's just he's very reserved he's not giving anything too easily Um and I think uh, Ingrid Bergman does that really well as well, as well. but then there are like other actors who are minor characters who are so big and loud in their expressions that they sort of, they give things away too easily. And so it becomes this very like mixed bag of people trying to figure out film. And I, I didn't realize this was an older movie, but I was really shocked by the performances of all the actors and how used to being reserved and acting in ways that aren't giving anything away. Like the policeman's a really good example or, Anthony Perkins or Norman, his performance was incredible because it was all just subtle, and all of all of the characters did that did that really well. Where everything that they did was just very subtle, very measured, and they weren't giving anything away.
1: It was almost I would almost think it was intentional. There were some characters that, as, like as you were saying, were still kind of theater acting. It was that old film style of they didn't realize how subtle they could be. Yeah, they like the definition of the camera and stuff didn't lend itself that you could just, like, only move your eyes and tell. But, like, Marion, her expressions were bigger. Like, she would keep her body still and do, like, face shots. Like, she had that down. But I think that Marion had, like, a bigger type of performance, as did, yeah. as did like, the psychiatrist definitely had his theater monologue. Um, Sam seemed like a stage actor. But it's, like, all of these people that are interacting with Norman Bates seemed to be, like, these bigger characters, and then you just... Had Norman, and it was just like the subtle thing. He seemed normal, but you could tell something was off.
0: I'm gonna I'm to let this out of the bag. I think that most of the things that go on in this movie are in Marion's head. I think it all happens in Marion's head. Elab- so elaborate. So, so one of my favorite types of movies is the type of movie where everything is not as it seems. Everything in the movie is just a little odd. There's 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 some sort of dissonance between. Some part of the, some part of the movie. And so, um, for example, so Marion sees her boss. I don't know if, you know, walking on the street, I don't know if he, she actually saw her boss, but I think she's freaking out. I'm pretty sure she's freaking out. She just stole $40,000, which is a heck of a lot of money back then. And she's running away with it to give it to her lover who she may have been seeing on dubious circumstances. She's already a little paranoid. And so now she's looking around and she's like, who is this guy? Or, or, Or who is this guy who looks like my boss? I'm freaking out now because he looks like my boss and I'm pretty sure that was my boss. And oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And then she is driving. And the thoughts in her head are like internal monologues about what my boss could be saying. And then she gets pulled over by the police officer and the police officer looks at her and she's sort of projecting this look onto him. He's he's just some random guy. He's just like, you you look like you're suspicious. Why are you acting suspicious? Because he's just, you know, some random guy. But I think she's I think what's brilliant about many of the actors' performances is that they sort of inferred them. Like, I'm going to act suspicious. Maybe this was a director's note, but I'm gonna act suspicious and make it look like I'm suspicious. Or I'm suspicious of you because that was what she was feeling. So I think this this entire movie is from Marion's perspective. And I can get into that a little bit more because I know there's a pretty big plot hole that she dies in the middle of the movie.
1: I see this theory and I like the idea. Because if you look from the beginning of the movie, you even have those moments where she's sitting in her car and you can see the gears turning. They actually have voiceover. Of these lines that she's yeah. assuming people are saying. Because it's obviously not what everyone else is saying. Yeah. Uh, because she's thinking, oh, I'm going to hire a hitman. The the cowboy dude's going to hire a hitman. The oil tycoon guy. Like, she's thinking he's going to hire a hitman to come after her. And whatever money that isn't returned, he's going to get paid back in flesh. Or something like that. Like, that's not a line that actually happened. That's just all in her head. So I could see where you get this thought where maybe Psycho is referring to Marion. And she's think, going psycho, I but I think the plot hole is not that she dies because that could be in her head. Oh man, what, this is a situation where I died. The plot hole is that after she dies, we don't see her again, and there's no nothing about her in the resolution.
0: I was thinking about that. Let's 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 get up to the the point where she dies first because I think there's a lot of a lot of things that that actually explain that. You, you notice that feeling of just discomfort throughout that entire first half of the movie. Everything you were just kind of looking around. I, I mean, were you were you looking around the room trying to like find things going on that weren't that didn't have to do with the characters? Like I noticed from the get go, every time I w- they were in a room, there would be like open windows, open doors, and I was just convinced that something was going to pop out through the door, somebody was going to come in, this character was going to get attacked, there was going to be somebody. Which,
1: which specific scenes? Like, are you talking about at the motel or so? In the I office? mean, at the motel
0: is. For sure, a perfect example. But I think it was in her home while she was packing, and how the camera was sort of pan- panning away from the money, and then it was panning away to the bathroom, or panning away to the window, and you would always see. You, I I always felt as though somebody was going to come in from that window, or come in from one of those doors, or there was something was going to pop out, or something was going to. Maybe that's just my own. Discomfort or the mirrors, like looking at the room from a different perspective and seeing it from a wider perspective.
1: I think the windows were an intention that when they were open uh, to create the feeling of like she's in in the public or she's in like she's not fully safe and secure or she's not in private. She has her windows open. So it creates this feeling of like intensity where yep. anything could happen. I agree. And I think that the point of that was to lead in to the sharp contrast. And we can talk about this later, but to the sharp contrast, when she's actually in the bathroom is the first like moment where she feels safe and secure to shut the door. There are no windows. She's in private. She's I don't think safe. she did shut the door. She shuts the door because then you see her in the shower, the curtains behind her, and then you can see the faded door opens and, oh. in, and in walks Mrs. Bates the moment that she let her guard down because she was in this safe space was the moment that cost her her life.
0: Interesting. Okay. But
1: it's also interesting you bring up windows because there's a very specific scene that I'm thinking of that I, that I noticed this while I was watching when Marion and Norman are in the parlor eating sandwiches, um, which first of all, all the stuffed birds. Awesome. Wild. We could talk about birds for him because there's birds in her in Cabin One. There's like like bird paintings, and then there's stuffed birds, and there's the scene where he's looking through the peephole, and he's surrounded by like these birds in attack mode, which like is just very like visceral image of like he's about to come yeah. down, swoop down on his prey. But there, when the specific scene where he's leaning back behind him is a tree, and there's a couple of like still birds, like he's not in attack mode, he's just there relaxed. Her shot, when it's her, shows. A curtain. You don't see the window. You just see the curtain covering part of the window. And then when you see the other shot with Norman walking around, the window's open. So it's almost like Norman's letting himself be seen, but Marion feels safe because she's, like, hidden away. But she's not safe. Oh, okay. So it's it's almost like when the windows are shut is when she's trapped.
0: Interesting. There was definitely a feeling of discomfort that I felt when all of the doors were open, all of the windows open, all of the rooms, um, all of the, the extraneous rooms were lighted or that there was a shot to an extra room or a shot to a place that we can't fully see. There was a lot of that. (laughs) There was a lot of that, especially before the murder. Mm.
1: There
0: was a lot of that before the murder, like almost every scene she was in, there was either a mirror that showed you parts of the room that you couldn't see. There was a, um, a window to somewhere else. There was a door to somewhere else, but it was always places that you couldn't see, but you kind of felt like you had to look in order to feel safe. Cause, because the entire first half of that movie before she died is from Marion's perspective. Yes. Which is why, which is why I think that it's all in Marion's imagination. That's one of the, one of the reasons. So it's from her perspective And it just doesn't make sense to me that there would be a hard cut in perspective from Marion. It's all Marion. I'm pretty sure, unless unless I'm mistaken, every scene leading up to when she gets killed, she's in the scene. Even when even when um, he's peering through the people, I think that's her imagining him peering through the people. Because like when you get to, um. Oh, we're totally skipping over this I want to make sure I, I talk about the, the the police officer as well because he he plays another important part So she's imagining all of these situations where he's really suspicious and then he like comes to watch her as she's swiping, swapping out a car because she's doing she's doing suspicious su- su- suspicious shit like she's trying to swap out a car and she's talking to this guy and she feels like the guy who's selling her the car is really suspicious. And she feels like the guy who's fixing her car is really suspicious. And then she sees the police officer. And in reality, the police officer is probably not the same. But it's the same police officer because we're seeing it from her perspective. And the police officer pulls in. And he's probably not looking for anything. He's probably just, you know, going to gas up. But because it's from her perspective... We see that it's the same exact police officer. We see it's the same exact person who's been watching her the entire time, who's, who's following her. So we get this sense that everything's happening very conspiratorially towards her. You see what I mean?
1: Yeah, but to me, it all comes down to the shower scene. So I, I think this movie is almost split into, I mean, yeah, there's three acts, but really there's, there's two there's halves two. of the movie. Because you have the, like, it's... Almost right in the middle. It's about 45, 47 minutes in is when Marion dies. And then there's about 55 minutes left. And so you go from phase one, which is all about Marion, to phase two, which is all about a lot of people. Right? So if the first half is all about Marion, I mean, the story could be like maybe the title could have (laughs) been Psycho's. Because all this stuff could be in her head and then she happens to be in the place where, oh, your paranoia is actually justified. You just thought it was for the wrong person. Or like she's paranoid. She gets into a situation that is actually sketchy and that's when she's calm. She's in the parlor with Norman. She's not freaked out. She's like being watched through the people. She's not freaked out. This is like the one moment that she's actually felt calm was when she was actually in danger but every other moment when up I don't officer's... think she was
0: though. I don't think when when she was in the parlor eating sandwiches with Norman. I think she's freaking out because because Norman takes and maybe you can think of it as like her paranoia versus her calmness. Norman as a as a a normal character. The first probably I don't know 5 minutes or so that we see him when he's checking her in, when he's doing all that, he he's just very like awkward. And you can you know track that on or or hang that on the fact that he's, you know, got a split personality. And that's that's the that's the top level of the plot. And I think that on, on one level that's true. I think if you look a little deeper, I think that that's that's just who he is in reality. And then the more she becomes suspicious of him, the more you see him turn a little nefarious. So, you know, that moment there was a, there was a moment where she's she's signing in and He says, I'm from Los Angeles or something like that. And he stops and then he goes to the the key number one, right? Mm. He makes a he makes a concerted choice and she, she's, it shows her paranoia. This is, this is, this was my whole perspective on this movie is that it's just her paranoia, her willingness to see things not as they are. Um, or see things through the lens of her paranoia and not the lens of reality, and so the 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 acting performance is sort of will switch back and forth between reality and non reality, and non reality starts to win out a little bit more as her character sort of gets closer to her her death.
1: The only, yeah, the only, I mean, there is that big plot hole though, where she does die, and I I don't think that that's anything other than she died, and I think that there is a very intentional imagery to support. Okay. Like in the, let's, let's talk, let's talk about that scene. Let's talk about the shower scene. Yeah. Um, so she goes in to take a shower. She shuts the door. She gets comfortable. You finally see her relax in the hot shower and then you see the door open and in comes Mrs. Bates. Okay. And it's just a very long choreographed stab scene. Fun, fun fact. First, do you know what they used for the blood?
0: Yes. Yes, I do know. This is one of my favorite movie facts they use chocolate syrup right
1: yep when it's black and white because it was the only way to get like that darker tone and it also was just the right consistency yeah um yeah so you have this like choreographed death scene but the biggest thing to me the shower's still running when she's finally like down and dead there's the shot of the shower drain like the shower's running then you see the water draining down the tube and then it fades and that drain where the water is draining down fades into like shot for shot her eye. So just her eye, become, like the drain becomes her eye. And I think that fully signifies the life draining out of her eyes. The water draining out of the shower. The life is draining out of Marion's eyes. She is dead. Okay. This might have all been in her head up until this point. But whatever actually happened, she is dead. Okay. Maybe she was paranoid and it was in her head that crazy stuff was happening. But some of that did actually happen. So if your theory is right, there's like a gray area of we don't know what actually happened and what didn't, but Norman Bates killed Marion. Yeah,
0: I, I, and that was that was the thing that I had to reconcile with is is if that's going to be true, and and I I really sort of hung my hat on it because if there was there was such that distinct difference between the way they shot the movie, the character styles, the relative sense of clarity throughout the whole thing, like it felt like. To me, it felt like the the second half sort of didn't matter as much because because Marion was dead and th- that was that was just how I felt about it. Um, it felt like it was a little bit more casual like that whole the whole whole time with Marion, I was kind of just gripping on and going like what's gonna happen who's gonna pop out who's gonna kill her like or or, or what's what's going to happen to her like why am I so nervous? And as soon as she died, I was just like, oh, okay. I can kind of sit back and enjoy myself. And it was kind of like somebody took the, the pressure off me. It, was-
1: it definitely, at that halfway mark, becomes a different movie. There's, and I think Alfred, I think Hitchcock did that on purpose. I think uh, you have this ent- this entire plot. Part one is about Marion. This is a movie about Marion. It's about her stealing this money. What's going to happen? She comes to the point where, okay, I'm going to go back. I'm going to apologize, I can get back to my regular life. And then she dies. And there's a sequence of shots of Norman hiding her body in the car, cleaning up after her. They make it very like Hitchcock is intentional about showing where the money is. I was tracking the money the whole time. I wanted to, I, cause I couldn't remember who ended up with the money and he put that's on the desk. He gets cleaned up. He's about to go dump her car, notices the newspaper and in a final act of cleaning up, takes the newspaper, which I think is Hitchcock saying, this plot is done and in the mud. That, pl- that plot doesn't matter. This movie is not about Marion. This movie is about Norman.
0: I, I'm going to give you, because I, I, I saw that as well. I saw that as well. The One of the things that I wanted to, because it, it is about the money. The whole movie isn't about Marion. It's not about her dying. And really, even in that last scene where they're like, so is my sister dead? And she's they're just kind of like, yeah i mean they, they didn't they didn't make a big deal out of it, but I, the whole movie was about where's the money where's the money who's the money going to and that was marion's whole whole fixation is they know I have the money, they know I have the money I have this money like I did something illegal they're gonna find me out for having this money. The whole fixation of the movie was on the money, and so that's why that's why I thought it was so specifically about her. Like it was all in her imaginations because they didn't really care about who died, her dying. They didn't really care about where's Marion, besides where's Marion, and she's hanging out with her boyfriend, that sort of thing. So it was very it felt very ambiguous, but it felt like the concern about where the money was was so concrete that it was like almost a little self-serving mm. towards her. So it was like the interest in, in the money was or Norman Norman's character was only involved because they thought he had the money. Because he and so he really only became involved in it tangentially because they thought he was gonna steal the money, he was gonna go buy another inn or or something like that. And it it made less sense to me that they weren't like, there's a missing person here. And maybe that's just a sign of the times they just really cared. It was just really...
1: No, I think, I think, that's a, I think it's a good question you bring up. Because we are... Right now we're talking about film as if it, it's like what happened in the movie was a history of what happened in the world. But we have to remember that this movie was created. It was, it was originally a novel, and then it was adapted to film. It was a novel, it was written, um, and then Alfred Hitchcock directed it. So the, the question is, why... Did let me see. Let me hold on. So Psycho was originally a novel by Robert, I think it's Block, but it might be Blanche. And then it was adapted to a screenplay by Joseph Stefano, and then Hitchcock directed it. So the question is: those originally Robert, but then Block. I'm gonna say Block. I'm probably I'm probably wrong. So. What was Block's intention? Then, what was Stefano's intention? Like, what was the message? And then, Hitchcock, what were their intentions behind this story? And immediately, maybe it's the world we live in today, but immediately, I think I almost receive it as it's a uh, dialogue on the danger of focusing on money or capitalism while there are other dangerous things happening, like mental health. Like, today, it almost feels like you guys are so focused on the money it's almost like you guys are so focused on the money that you're ignoring people who need mental help, like who who need yeah. assistance and it's causing people harm.
0: I would I think you're completely right about that. And I think I mean this is my favorite thing about just movies in general is that there are so many different levels to a movie where the plot works and the plot explains the things and you'll you'll see the same exact plot and it means two almost contradictory ideas but the idea or the the byline that goes through the entire movie with that one theme is completely different so i i think that's completely correct that he's he's actually talking about money's not that important why are we talking about money why is that the thing that we're focusing on instead of this but there was a line and i i think i missed this the first time and i was talking to somebody about this and they were like oh so you know the 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 famous line about we all go a little mad sometimes. Do you remember where Norman's talking to Marion and I think he's talking about how his mom's going a little senile or a little crazy and she is like, Why don't you put it put her in a mental institution?
1: That's a that actually that conversation is huge because How you mentioned earlier, Anthony Perkins' subtlety in his acting, there's a lot of information from his performance you can gain from what actually is Norman's history.
0: I want to spend a good chunk of time just talking about Anthony Perkins' performance because that was, I mean, so multifaceted. But I want to make sure that I mentioned the whole we all go a little mad sometimes because I think that that's a huge line describing one of the themes of the movie. And I think you're absolutely right about the absurd obsession with money. An obsession that goes beyond any rational explanation. I mean, because she was dead and there's a missing person, but it seemed like everybody was just like, where's the money? Where's the money? Where did you put the money? And I think the we all go a little mad sometimes line is really descriptive of not just Anthony Perkins or Norman's Norman's kind of nuttiness or descent into madness. But I think it's also Marion's descent into madness or Marion's descent into paranoia.
1: It's, it's really what brings that... I see that line in three parts and there's probably more. First of all, it is a connection to the audience. Everyone does. It's a testament yeah. to us. Everyone does go a little bit mad. It's, it's a kind way for Norman to kind of like, he's not really seeing what's going on with her, but in a way he's almost like saying, take a breath, you're acting a little ridiculous. You're going mad. Take a breath. What should you actually do? Stop being paranoid. And that was her revelation to, I'm going to go back to Phoenix. I'm going to return the money and I'm going to try and salvage this mess I've made. And it's also a huge foreshadowing moment. I'm going to kill you. Not You don't catch that from that. But having watched it, knowing the, the plot twist and everything, you're like, everyone goes a little mad sometimes. He's saying, I go mad. I go mad a little sometimes, and I I think it's the most dangerous line. It's the most connective and dangerous line of the entire movie, probably.
0: I know. I I completely agree. I do think, though, at least from my perspective, it felt a little too on the nose for me to go. This is just him talking about Marion, you know, making a crazy mistake and stealing a lot of money. He didn't know that. Fairly certain he didn't know that, but. It definitely shows Marion going a little nuts, and that's that's why I kind of thought with it being such a human touchstone, and with the movie's name being Psycho, it didn't say psychos, it didn't like it didn't, but it made me think at the end, well, who who is the real psycho here? Because if this is all in her head, which it might be from my perspective,
1: I think that I think you can take it multiple ways. I don't think you're wrong saying it's yeah. in her head. I think that's one way to. Um... I don't know. One way to take the movie is through that. Like, then it's not wrong, and then there's and then you can take it literally. I think it works, well, and
0: that like... was that was why I was so shocked at the end of the movie when they didn't they didn't mention it at all. They didn't mention Marion other than the fact that she was dead and that she stole forty thousand dollars, and that was pretty much it. But there was always that that piece that left me hanging. Like, there's something more here. There's something more here that they didn't address, and they didn't address it on purpose. So that. That was why I sort of felt as though there was there was a big part of it that Marion still was playing in it, just because of the fact that Hitchcock specifically said we all go a little mad sometimes is that as a universal statement, so not just him, not just her, not just just the mom but sort of everybody the The focus on money, which is what Marion was focusing on, and the fact that they didn't really. They didn't acknowledge Marion that much in the movie, so my and and the fact that Anthony Perkins' performance sort of changed after he died. Now, and I, I really want to talk about Anthony Perkins' performance, just as a yeah. whole, because he carried that movie.
1: Oh, absolutely! absolutely. <laughs> I think it's still, I mean, for the time, I think it's still a good movie if they put anyone else there. But I think what part of the reason that made it so great is that. His performance was so unsettling. Not just not just him being Norman, but him being Norman being Norman's mom. Like those moments when he was in like you don't really notice it until the big like the big reveal when he's coming at Marion's sister, whose name I can't remember, and Sam stops him. Um he comes in and it's just like that that wig falls off and you see him just like deranged and you're
0: like, Oh. Are you talking about like are you talking about a, when he's in the they're in the cellar. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um,
1: hold on. Let me let me figure out what Lila. So there Lila's in the cellar, discovers Mrs. Bates's corpse, and then Norman comes in from the stairs dressed as Mrs. Bates with the knife running at her. Lila's scream Lila's been screaming. Sam runs in and grabs the knife, and you just see Norman kind of struggle and this, like he's like not trying to push. Out of Sam per se, as much as he's trying to like, he's writhing like he's just been caught, and he's like sickly, and he's like just kind of. It almost looks like he's melting, and like melts to the side. Like he's resisting being pushed or maneuvered, but he's not.
0: Where, where's which scene is this? Is this, this
1: is this is near the end of the movie. This is when Norman gets caught. So oh. this is this is Sam and Lila decide. Hey, Sam's like I'm going to distract Norman. You go up to the house and question his mother. Lila goes up to the house. She goes all upstairs. Can't find anyone. Uh, Norman comes running back. So she goes and hides in the downstairs. She ends up going down to the cellar and then she sees Mrs. Bates from the back and then her corpse kind of turns. And that's the big reveal of Mrs. Bates is dead. Yeah. She screams. Norman comes running in with a knife dressed as his mom. I guess Mrs. Bates, the Mrs. Bates in his, in Norman's head comes in and then Norman gets grabbed by Sam from behind because Sam was knocked out. He comes running in, saves Lila's life. Yeah. But like just Anthony Perkins' performance in that in that specific moment where he comes running in, yelling with a knife, gets grabbed. It's kind of like melting and twisting and contorting in this just way that people don't interact. Like, he wasn't like struggling like to try and force his way out. He was like writhing. Like he was... Because it,
0: yeah. And that tracks with the end of the performance too where they, he describes that he was fighting himself he was sort of fighting against that that more base nature in in himself i mean yeah the way the way he shifts between between the anxious sort of childlike innocent person and that nefarious like i know exactly what i'm doing i know exactly what i'm doing and you're just right in my hands i mean just blew me away
1: it has me thinking about the uh the end with the psychiatrist and like the monologue, like the biggest monologue in the entire movie, it was the psychiatrist who's only in this one scene explaining what's going on with Norman. And the entire time I was thinking like, did you, did you like have to tell us this? Did you just want the audience to know? Like, why are you directly like, what's with the exposition? And maybe it's just huge in the novel, but, or maybe like the audience, he was worried the audience wouldn't catch like, this is what's going on. Yeah,
0: you're right. I think humanizing it was a really important part of it because he's, he's the villain. He's for sure the villain, but I mean, it goes back to that line. We all go a little crazy sometimes. It's that is the most human line from the, the whole thing. And then with the explanation from the psychiatrist, we're not necessarily talking about him being this deranged criminal. We're talking about it in terms of life circumstances we're talking about it in terms of a reaction to to some things that were largely out of his control.
1: In a way, it almost reinforces that idea of you guys are so focused on the money, but there are people here that are more important. So they're not focusing on, yes, he's a crazy killer, and more of he has been acting this way because of his situation. Like, let's talk about what actually happened and not just write him off as cuckoo because that's not okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's like, he's not a monster anymore. He's just, he's just a. Troubled. I mean, and that was, that was deep, why deep the, the innocence trouble. part of his character was so important. Because, I mean, when he was, when he was talking about taxidermy as a mm. hobby or as a way of life. Yeah. Which is unsettling because taxidermy in general is just like, whoa. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a little bit like, like if I ever met somebody who was really into taxidermy, I would really hope that I was like in public when I was talking to him. Because I'm like, I am about to get stuffed.
1: I <laughs> do you know what, you know as, what I mean? as a side note taxidermy in general as a hobby makes me uncomfortable just cuz I feel like it goes against the I mean it's not really a political statement but like for me seeing the taxidermy thing it's more of like that that feels really strange to me I was like why do you feel the need to stuff an animal strange like, hobby. that was a for this movie it made me less uncomfortable because I knew what was coming but I was yeah. like, so to me where I'm like, this is life that you are now just putting on display and that's weird, but it's like, oh no, the point of it is to like show he's okay with hanging on to things that are dead and pretending maybe oh, that they're Oh, I didn't even catch that. Yeah, it, it was a foreshadowing moment to the fact that his, he kept his mother, like, his corpse preserved. That's the whole point of the taxidermy.
0: And that's why he talked about, oh my gosh, I completely missed that.
1: And I... It's a way of life was not a comment on, oh, I really like doing taxidermy. It's a way of it's life. It's a way was of how he's he, living. His subconscious knows his mom is dead and his entire way of life is like playing with his mom. See, this is,
0: I, I think I'm at the point right now where I think they're, the both sides of it are true. That it literally happened and it's literally in her head. Because, because and I, I hate to harp on this because I know we've gone gone back to this so much, but I think she's taking so much of what he said in that conversation between the two of them and and she's literally just acting out of what he, he told her about himself.
1: Mm. Well, I think, so I think the, is it all in her head, is it not? I think both can be true. Yeah. Where she, Marion, Marion does not know right. that Mrs. Bates is stuffed. So Marion's truth is everyone's out to get me. There's this nice kind of awkward guy and his mom killed me. Yeah. Oh, all the things that could go wrong. But really, it's almost like this sense of, oh, there's one. I'm using air quotes here because I don't like calling people psycho and whatever. But there's one psycho in in the movie, Marion, who's so paranoid. She gets to the moment of like realization where she lets that go. She lets her paranoia go. Now there's room for another psycho to take the place. And that's when we realize something nefarious is afoot. And now it's about Norman. In his in his issues, it was about paranoia. Now it's about what's going on with Norman's mom. Is she alive? Is she not? What's happening?
0: No, it's all about paranoia. That's well, it's the, a little bit. I mean, that no, that, too. That's, it's all about paranoia because Norman's paranoid, too. He's just paranoid about different things. Yeah. And I, I think I was talking to, I don't remember who I was talking to about this, but psycho is literally a short term for psychosis, which means not being in touch with reality. And that's true for both of them. I think that's an honest assessment of both of them.
1: They mentioned at the end that there were other missing persons reports. So this is not the first time Norman has done this. Right.
0: Right, right, you right. Caught right.
1: That? Um but he starts to get nervous when people come questioning Marion because there was a lot of money involved and he didn't realize people were going to be like after the money and come and questioning him. So he where you have Marion paranoid in the first half he's almost equally paranoid where people start coming and questioning and he's starting to get worried. He's lying. He's, there was this whole scene when Arbogast first came, he contradicted himself uh, so many times. Norman did. Yeah. He answered in one way, oh, I haven't had any guests in the past week. And then you have, he sees the guest book and then he mentions, oh, I've had other guests. And there's just so many times. Let me see. I wrote some of this down first first of all norman's very quick to agree he's paranoid in a different way where marion would just try and leave and get get people away norman would just be quick to agree with with anyone um he w- he's quick to agree with marion too i don't remember specifically what he did to contradict himself with arbogast but there were a lot of moments that he would come in he would ask something he would go back on it
0: yeah he, so the first thing was the first thing was we ha- haven't had a lot of guests right and then the other thing that he said was around not really, it's, there's not really any point of keeping up the, the appearances of the motel.
1: Yeah, yeah. And he, then
0: he said, he specifically, I'm doing laundry today and I need to turn the motel's lights up.
1: But on. it was also the, there's no point keeping it up, but he still has guests register. And then he asked about the registration. He's like, oh, I haven't been having guests register in the book. Yeah. Why keep it up? And he's like, well, can I look at it? And then immediately there's people in the book. It's like very clear. Like he, Norman does a very bad job hiding it. He just got lucky that Arbogast was looking for money and not for a corpse.
0: He's very childish in that way. I think that was that was that that aspect of him coming out because because I think Norman was such an innocent character. As a at, at his in his truest self, he was an innocent character.
1: I think when he when he poisoned his mom and her boyfriend (laughs) yeah no but i think when that happened and he like switched in his head i think his mother's been the one that's aging and maturing and norman has been like is like recessed the child so it's the child and the mother he's he's no longer a grown man the adult part of him is his mom and then the norman part is a kid
0: do you think that the the lying truth was just him switching back and forth between mother and son
1: I don't. I think he was son at that moment. I think I. I think he was just like, he was nervous and didn't know what to say. People were coming and asking questions. It felt like a little boy who was trying to hide something. The boy came out the first time Arbogast came. Say that again. So with that, like innocence, I don't think that Norman was flipping back and forth when okay. Arbogast was questioning him. Yeah. I think the first time Arbogast came to the Bates Motel, the boy answered, and when Arbogast came back again and started getting suspicious, the mom took over to defend Norman.
0: Oh, okay. Cause that was, Cause so that, that was would, more like the mother protecting the son, that sort of thing.
1: I think so. Yeah. That, that makes, well, the, that makes the mother protecting plenty herself. of sense. If you remember at the end, the mother is willing to throw Norman under the bus to save herself, even though they're the same person. She was willing to let everyone think Norman killed everyone because it kept her safe. Even though they're both in Norman's head, Like, yeah. there's like this complete disconnect.
0: That, make, that makes so much sense. Uh, it says in my notes, so I wanted to talk to you about Arvagas looking like uh, Taika Waititi and Jim Carrey. Now, I, I don't know what it was about it, but just if you, like, mashed their faces together. Like, as soon as I saw him, I was just like, he's about to do a Jim Carrey smile or something like that.
1: Uh, I do not see that. I can maybe see where you're getting at, but...
0: As soon as he started talking, I was just like, "It's not it." But, but,
1: <laughs> I thought I recognized him from somewhere else, and I was wrong. I thought he might have been the lead in Chinatown, and then I looked it up, and I was like, it's he w-
0: "Jack, Jack Nicholson." Yeah,
1: he looked so. I guess I thought he looked like Jack Nicholson <laughs> a little bit uh, think, in black and white. I haven't seen Chinatown in a while.
0: I think it's the rubbery fa- rubbery looking face. Jack Jack Nicholson has that big wide smile, yeah, that's like goes kind of up to his ears, and Jim Carrey's just Jim Carrey.
1: Yeah, yeah, I see that. I w- Arbaga- Arbogast is a good character to bring out. That character felt a little strange to me because he had his intention why he was he was trying to find the money, but then he was kind of attached to Lila and Sam's story and trying to find.
0: Ar Arbogast was the only reason I thought that my theory about it being in her head was wrong. Arbogast and a couple of extraneous characters because. If it was all in her head, then she wouldn't make up a character. It would just be similar-looking people. And maybe and maybe Arbogast does look like, is, looks similar to one of the characters. But if it, it just, if
1: it was in her head, the cop would have shown up. The cop that, would have come again.
0: Right, right. That's, that was sort of what I thought. But anyway, speaking of Arbogast, because there's, there's one particular scene I wanted to ask you about. Because you have a lot of, of behind-the-camera experience, there was one scene that was so unsettling, and I was so like, blown away by the the shot. So it was one, Arbogast is climbing the stairs. You were going to ask me about this. about
1: This was one of the shots I was going to bring up.
0: Yeah. This was... So it was behind, or when when uh, Arbogast is climbing the stairs, and this camera's zooming in on him, and it's like it's like a very Stanley Kubrick shot.
1: Yeah, so just for... To reference in the point of the movie, Arbogast has come to the Bates Motel. He's talked to Norman. He's, he's not gotten a lot out. He asks to talk to Mrs. Bates. Norman says no. Arbogast leaves the Bates Motel, calls Lila and Sam, says he'll see them soon, goes back to the Bates Motel, can't find Norman, goes up to their house, unlawfully enters, starts climbing the stairs, and this shot.
0: So I have an idea of how you do it. But it was it was such an unsettling thing to see, like the unsettling shot. I mean, it was very Kubrick. Which are
1: you talking about? The moment that he's going up, or the going moment up that he's, the stairs? Going up the stairs. I may have to rewatch that because I was my thought with the shot that was interesting to me was him falling down the stairs. Um, which is almost immediately it's almost after. The,
0: almost the same thing. But it was it was and it might have been a very a very similar shot but i remember so it looks like he's approaching the stairs or he's he's approaching the top of the stairs his face is getting closer the background is getting further away mm. it seems like one of those dolly cam shots where they're going up the stairs and the 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 camera's moving back but the camera's focusing in on his face
1: why am i forgetting the there is a the name of that shot i know exactly how it's done and i oh man why can i not remember what it's called the way so so you're saying he's staying in the same spot but it looks like the background is getting farther away from him as he goes up the stairs
0: i thought it was a like a a dolly shot where so they're on like a on like a dolly or like a coaster or something like that the the camera is actually going back, but they're focusing in focusing in as the camera is moving back. So it looks like he's staying in the same spot or even getting closer while the background is moving back.
1: Yeah, so in a shot like that, let me explain it for the listeners too. So you have Arbogast goes into the Bates' house. You see him opening the door. It turns, you see a shot of the stairs. Then it turns <laughs> back to show Arbogast from the waist up yeah. and he's climbing the
0: stairs. Yeah.
1: And there's a few things going on there. First of all, it's not, it's not a straight level shot. It's called a Dutch tilt.
0: Yeah. I, so, I so, knew about the Dutch angle.
1: So, so it's, it's Dutched. I don't know that people say it's Dutched, but I'm going to say it's Dutched because it we, sounds we, we, cool. We should start calling We're it. We're going to say it's Dutch. So that shot was Dutched, which, um, lets you know that something is up. Something's not right. Something is yeah. off just a little bit.
0: They use that again with one of the times they're first introducing Norman and they're in the, the parlor and they're looking up at him because he's looking very powerful. Yeah. I yeah. Remember-
1: It's very good. Yeah. So this, in this case, there's all, there's three main things going on. The angle's dutched. You have, I think that the camera would be on tracks at this point in time in 1960, in 60, they didn't really have like big, um, oh, like steady cams. And these yeah. cameras would have been huge. So it's likely that they had a track built on the stairs that and they, was what and I was they were track. Like, that's why it's called the tracking shot is yeah. that it would have been like on an actual like cart on a track and they would have been pulling it up the stairs.
0: That's what i meant by that, so by the way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. Um, and then the third thing going on is you notice the background's getting farther away. It's a huge part of Alfred Hitchcock's style that like, that move is named the Hitchcock effect because Alfred Hitchcock liked to use it. So there's two ways it gets used. One like this, where the character is staying the same and the background gets really, really far away. And then there's what you see in a lot of modern movies now. When a character is surprised, um, you'll see their, their head. It'll be a close-up shot and the background will come crashing into them. Yeah. And so that's, that's an effect that takes two simultaneous moves from the camera <laughs> operator takes two simultaneous moves from the camera operator. You have um, the lens length is being changed while the camera is moving. The, the lens length. Oh, so like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're like zooming out the lens. Um, in that case, you would actually, I think, be zooming in, in the that's, lens. That's what I thought so was going on. But while that's happening, they also have to rack focus so that he stays – so that Arbogast, the character, stays oh, so in there's focus. there's like an, an
0: incredible amount so of complications. that,
1: that shot is actually there's three effects but it's actually broken down into four simultaneous i mean the tilt you just set it that way the track so there's three simultaneous things someone's pulling probably a cart that has the camera and probably a camera op on it who is there's probably one person racking the focus onto arbogast and one person who is shifting the the lens focus to create that effect that vertigo effect yeah i I was, rack and I was like, that's called the Hitchcock effect, isn't it? But we're talking about Hitchcock. So I had to look it up, uh, full disclosure. But it is called the Hitchcock effect. Um, a lot of people call it the Hitchcock effect or Dolly
0: Zoom. What were the other scenes that you wanted to ask me about? Because uh, that was, was one of them. There was
1: one in particular. Um, I don't remember a lot of older films doing long one takes or one single shot okay. scenes. Um, so like if you've seen, I think it was 1917. Is that the war movie that came out? Recently, that was like shot. talking about the, the the scene where the one that well, so 1917 was shot to look like it was all one take. It, the whole entire the I don't think it was. Right but there's there's one shot in Psycho that is it's after this one. So Lila and Sam go to the sheriff. Yes, to check on Norman. Yeah, Norman's kind of thinking more people are going to come after they after he kills uh, Arbogast after okay. Arbogast dies. So he tells his mom he needs to hide her in the cellar. Yeah. So the shot I'm talking about, Norman comes into the house. So this is actually, this is after Sam comes and asks questions and then leaves because he can't find anybody.
0: Right. 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 So
1: right. Norman goes into the house. The shot starts Norman walking up the stairs oh. and the entire thing. So you see it going up the stairs. The camera follows him slowly. And then as it gets to the top of the stairs at about foot level, it starts to boom up into yeah, yeah, high yeah, yeah, yeah. angle on the door while this conversation's happening and he's and then it goes into a bird's eye straight above that hallway and then you see norman walk out with his mom and that was another one
0: of those really i mean that stairwell like there were so many shots on that stairwell that were just amazing
1: it's almost makes you think that man i haven't thought about it until now so it might take a little bit more time and analysis but that stairwell has to represent like that house has to represent norman's mind where his mother is higher and taking priority so when he goes into the house and he goes up the stairs he's going up to his mom and then this there's this power shift where he has to hide his mom and hide who his mom is by like pushing her down all the way to the bottom of the house where she normally is at the top and so that stairway is powerful. So Arbogast going up the stairs is almost like him starting to understand what's going on with Norman and climbing his psyche. And just as he gets to the top and realizes what's going Cuts on, down. that's when he gets cut down. So wow. anyone who goes into the house that, is going into I, – I think that the house kind of that's, represents Norman. No, that's,
0: that's probably a really – because I, I mean – he going said back, he, he grew
1: up there. He grew up in that house. He grew up in his. It's like go,
0: I mean, going going back to the the whole idea of like just things being in people. I I really like that. I, I think I like that better than the the, the Marion. Well, I mean, I think that there there could be some truth there, but I think that the Arbogast thing really puts a hole in that. But I knew that there was some really big psychological component here, or like I really I, I said this earlier. I really love movies where all is not where it's like all is not what it seems or or there's there's a there's an extra meaning or there's a there's a an extra level of depth to things that show you into an aspect of the character that you can't immediately pick out. I'm trying to (laughs) I'm trying to come up with examples but I don't want to do it for movies that you haven't seen. But
1: well, I, I think there's plenty of examples within 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 this movie, this right? Movie. For, exa- for example, if if the house represents Norman's mind and Norman's brain, what does that mean when him and his mom lived there after his dad died and it wasn't until she met someone else? This other guy convinced her to build a motel outside of the house. And that's why Norman kills them.
0: And then, Is that
1: a sign that she's she's with Norman? As to, she's a big part of Norman's upbringing in his head, and when she goes to move away from him and gets too distant, he panics. So I I totally see so what you're saying. So it's it's
0: not just it's not one or the other. It's not just about Marion. It's not just about Norman. And it's not it's definitely not from a third party. It's not from it's not from a like a like an omnipotent third party view of things. Marion. It's, it's from Marion's point of view up until she dies. I still, for whatever reason, am convinced of the fact that she is imagining Norman looking through the hole, in peep, the peephole. And as soon as she dies, we assume Norman's s- state of mind, state of being, that, and we have that, that, that perspective and that immediately shifts. And so we're looking through the eyes of two different psychos, I guess. Somebody who, who's losing touch with reality, if we're, if we're going to use that definition. And the movie is about, it's called Psycho, but it's about two different people who are slowly descending into I that. Think, I think that, for me, makes the most sense about how to, how to view this movie. And I think that the house metaphor really, really puts it together for me
1: you have this first half of the movie where you have this huge focus on Marion, but you're missing kind of a lot of depth. Like there's some backstory in there. They hint, she's been working with her boss for 10 years. She's in love with this guy. Maybe she was married previously, but we're not sure. But then you get to the second half of the movie and that's where the story is actually built out. You have uh, Norman with his tragic past. You have the house, his mom, his, his dad passing away, the new lover, the, murder suicide which turned up to be a double homicide. The second half feels way more like built out. It's Yeah. Like I could see where it's definitely about these two things, but I almost wonder too if Hitchcock was like, "We're going to start this as a classic movie with the heroine and then I'm going to let it stay for a while to get you comfortable thinking it's about her. Maybe she gets out, but then I'm going to throw it at you late. This movie's not about her." I mean, at the end of the day, the movie's, the movie's about we were also obsessed with what's going to happen to that money. Even I got caught in yeah. that this time. What's happening with the money? Who's going to end up with the money? Okay, she's dead. Where's the money going to go? <clears throat> money doesn't matter. It goes in the mud pit. So at the end of the day, the movie, like, yeah, it focuses on those two air quotes again. And I like that you did air quotes earlier. Psychos. Yeah. Um, but really, it's not about any of that. Really, it's about how we are perceiving people and where our focus is and attention is. Because there's we can evaluate what the house means all we want. We can right. evaluate why Norman did like but at the end of the day it's there are people that are hurting and kind of having their own issues. There was even a talk at the beginning of the movie which could lean into your theory. Marion's coworker offered her tranquilizers. She didn't take them, but right. if she did, or maybe she thought she didn't, or maybe she did end up taking them, then yeah, of course she's tripping. Who knows what's going on? She's on right. tranks but that whole thing of even her coworker was like prescribed tranquilizers. Yeah. I think that was a hint on, you may not have picked it up in the parlor. This is going way off on a tangent again.
0: It's my favorite thing. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I think Marion mentions Norman. Why don't you take her someplace? She says someplace and he says, Oh, when people say someplace and he goes into this description, almost as from experience, there was a quote that, that I was, had read. That was down. what I thought. And the and the quote he says, "In the cruel eyes studying you, being in a place like that, in the cruel eyes studying you, no, I can't send her there, or something like that." And it's like the way he said it; it was like he's been there. Yeah, he knows well, what that's like. Probably because he's experienced like his both of his parents passing. He probably had to go to get checked up on or whatever. But like that that institution being not trustworthy. Um, the, a woman being prescribed tranquilizers for a headache, probably migraines, right. as opposed to like looking at other issues. Like it's very clear that part of this movie is we're not taking mental health seriously.
0: I, I think that's completely true. Or or even just humanizing people who are quote unquote psychos or quote, or, or quote unquote crazy or, or people who are, I mean to use a really antiquated term, hysterical. All of those words create a very us versus them mentality where the people who are not dealing with that are quote-unquote normal, and the people who are dealing with that are the outsiders. They're the people who go to the padded rooms. They're the people who get tranquilized. They, they're the people who get medicated. They're the people who get shut away. And I think the idea of the movie, at least for me, was we're going to show somebody who is a, a normal person, Marion, who was dealing with stuff for sure. I mean, she was she was going down, just descending into paranoia and madness and they were going to show a character who was doing horrible things but when you think about it they both did horrible things she stole 40 grand right and he killed five people i believe is the tally something like that yeah um that we know about and i think maybe the one of the morals of the story is that people aren't inherently bad they do things because of bad situations bad situations or bad emotional states
1: yeah i was gonna ask you do you think that naming this movie psycho is problematic like do you think nowadays do you think that that would be a problematic thing because you're calling norman a psycho but i think now after after this conclusion it's called psycho as a way to say almost to say like we shouldn't be called like we you would call him a psycho but really, he's going through more it's, than you're willing to look at.
0: I think it was specifically inflammatory. Or it was using a term that was inflammatory for a reason, and it's it's because of that reason that we have we focus on two characters. And I think this is probably the the way I prefer to look at it, is that we're looking at two characters whose situations were not all that different when you take a step back. Yeah, but because one did horrible things, killed somebody they killed the protagonist right right and the other the other was the protagonist but she also stole a lot of money you're you're kind of getting you're you're having to compare but when you take a step back they both did the same thing essentially or they both committed a crime they didn't do the same thing but they both committed some sort of crime um so i think i i, I when i finished the movie i really appreciated the intentionality of of the title i really appreciated the intentionality i think as i mean as we've had this conversation i appreciate it even more because i understand that it was it was sort of a tongue-in-cheek term to describe not just the killer but also the the um also marion who is having you know significant mental health struggles as well
1: and in a way the movie could be calling the us psychos for you, you think that these people are crazy. Like you guys, you're psycho.
0: And like they said, we all go a little mad sometimes, right?
1: I feel like that's a perfect way to end. So overall, it's a lot deeper than maybe. I mean, Alfred, it's Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. I mean, even watching it the second time, it's deeper than I remembered going into it, and it's even deeper now that we've talked about it. than and that's why I like doing stuff like this and having someone to talk about this with because you can get a lot out of film, but until you share that viewpoint, like you can really further understand what's going on in a story from a director um, from the actors in performances. There's like a lot going on. It's fun to analyze, but there's also, this is a great example of a film where there is a message and it does make you think, why do I look at people that way?
0: Yeah. 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 I completely agree.
1: My question for you, we're not going to, we're not going to rank this one on scale, one no, no, 10, I mean... but I want to say, timeline wise how long do you think you'll wait before you watch it again or should i say how long are you going to wait before you show this to someone else
0: i i would definitely i would definitely watch this again within a couple of months if somebody hadn't seen the movie um it, this just goes along with the the type of movies that i really really love so any movie that 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 makes you look deeper than the surface of the movie because i really love expansive plots and 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 uh worlds that are incredibly built out, but I also really love bare bones plots, and especially like old movies like this the plot's really bare bones, things sort of get built out, but you really at the end of the movie only get the the bare bones of what you need There's no part of that movie that can be taken out without really affecting the rest of the movie. Um, and I really love movies like that.
1: With Top Gun, we talked about you could take off certain ending scenes; it'll make it a different movie, but it would still be like good. But then to see with Psycho, if you take out anything, it it doesn't work. And I think that that's incredible. For me, I think I'll just say I freaking love this movie. I would probably show it to someone next week. I would watch. Oh, really? it. I would. I would watch it again tomorrow. So if it was with the right person,
0: that's how I am with um, To Catch a Thief. So To Catch a Thief is another Hitchcock movie. There's a lot so as much as I just like really praised movies that are really, you know, no fat on it, no fat on on the movie whatsoever. The plot is just as it is and every every part of the plot is is perfect. To Catch a Thief is not that. There's like red herrings everywhere. It's a pure mystery movie. It's like in Technicolor. It's I mean it's very glamorous. It's, it's very. It's, it's Alfred Hitchcock. It's right? an Alfred Hitchcock movie. And so if I, if I were to show you a new movie, it would either be to catch a thief, or maybe something along another psychological thriller, whether it's Fight Club or uh, maybe not Shutter Island, a uh, Taxi Driver. That was the one. That that was the movie that I thought was really similar to this.
1: I had a couple movies after watching this that inspired me to i could i kind of want to watch this movie now but i did show you psycho so i think it is your turn to show me a movie i think that's fair is fair should i want to i want to hear your movies psycho reminded me of my passion for older films okay um so one of them i I mean i already mentioned it was chinatown it's kind of like a mystery (laughs) we've seen uh, we've both seen chinatown i've seen
0: chinatown i've never been able to talk about it with anybody other than to say it's just so dark And then, so dark. It
1: is very dark. But then the other, the other thing that comes up, which I kind of actually don't want to watch, is The Godfather. For some reason, popped up. But everyone does The Godfather. Everyone talks about The Godfather. Everyone. I'd rather watch something new. We'll wait. But so, like, I think I haven't seen To Catch a Thief. I haven't seen Fight Club, and I have not seen Taxi Drivers. Those are three really good options. So the question is, how do we choose between those three?
0: Part of me is really pushing towards to catch a thief but i i really like all three of them
1: why don't why don't we just watch to catch a thief then yeah, i was going you were you were talking about a passion that you made me want to watch it
0: yeah sweet great next time let's do uh to catch a thief alfred hitchcock back to back I- i'm kind of about it i'm all kind right. of about it
1: are we sticking with roll credits
0: roll credits let's do it hot as fresh milk
1: All right. So I know Connor and I earlier talked about a little bit about captions and subtitles. So I wanted to come back in and just explain the difference after a little bit of research. Don't want to spread any false information. So captioning on film and TV is designed for viewers who cannot hear. So that includes typically not only dialogue, but other extraneous sounds happening. If there's birds chirping, if there's music playing, most of that is included in captions while subtitles are designed for viewers who can hear, but, don't necessarily speak the language. So subtitles are more of if you're watching a movie in Spanish, you don't speak Spanish, you have English subtitles. Captions will have extraneous sound subtitles, typically just have dialogue. Now, the difference between open captions and closed captions, we talked about that a little bit as well. Open captions are always in view. You can't turn those off, and closed captions can be turned on and off. So if you went to the movies and the film you're watching has captions on it, And like, you don't have a choice to turn those on and off. They're just on the screen. Those are open captions. If you're at home and you can like turn captions on and off on your TV at will, those are closed captions. There's a little lesson for you. All right. Well, see you guys.